This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Until recently, Matt Osman has been best known as the bassist and founder member of the English rock group Suede. But even as their ninth studio album, Autofiction, continues to achieve worldwide success, Matt is busily making a name for himself in the world of literary fiction. His second novel, The Ghost Theatre, is a gripping historical fantasy. Set in London in 1601, amid a troupe of child actors forced to perform under Queen Elizabeth's royal warrant, it's a spellbinding tale of double lives and the beguiling effect of performance on both audience and players. Before Matt joins us from his home in London, here's a clip of Ellie Kendrick narrating The Ghost Theatre. If the men had brought dogs rather than their fancy trained wolves, then Shay would be dead by now. Dogs could have been let off the leash, and they'd have made short work of her up here on the roofs. Wolves, though, were worth a sovereign, and that was too rich a prize to be risked on a flapper like her. Gilmore had begun chasing her back in East Cheap, where it was easy enough to leap from rooftop to rooftop. The roads there were barely wide enough for a cart to pass through, and the houses leant towards one another like plants seeking the sun. There, Shay had stepped between the roofs as easily as stepping across a stream. But the men drove her westwards. At first, she'd relished this. West London roofs were tile rather than daub, and she worried less about crashing through into the rooms below. But as they forced her towards grander streets wide enough for carriages, the jumps were becoming hard work. Her legs throbbed with the effort. She threw herself across St. Peter's Hill and barely made it. Her leading foot caught the edge of the thatch and it was only momentum that carried her body on to flatten against the slope of the roof. Grit bit her hands and knees. She scrambled around the building's edge, leaning into its slope and cursed the loss of rhythm. Below her, three stories down, the rest of Gilmore's men careered along the street. She flung herself across a short gap between domed roofs and scampered across a rare glass skylight. A glimpse of faces turning up to watch her feet, and then she slid down a bank of mossy tiles onto the house's flat border. A ten-foot gap gaped in front of her. Matt Osman, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you very much for having me. As we've just heard, the Ghost Theatre is set in 1601 during the final years of Queen Elizabeth I's reign. What was it that drew you to that period particularly? Well, weirdly, I was kind of agnostic to when it was set in a, in a strange way. I had this idea very early on that I wanted to write about kind of like an artistic movement like, like punk or dada or something like that, but set it back in history. But I wasn't, I didn't have any definite time of, of when it would be. Originally, I kind of set it as a kind of the Sex Pistols in um, Victorian England, but it all got a bit kind of music hall and folk music, mm. um, and I couldn't really make it work. And then I saw this incredible uh, documentary about the Blackfriars Boys, about kids who'd been kidnapped to, to perform on stage, and the connections there. With, with, the, with these kids who only really have power in the kind of hour and a half they're on stage and the rest of the time, you know, they're, they're actually possessions. Um, it just made everything flow. So it, it, I actually had to spend a lot of time learning about the Elizabethan period um, because I didn't know much about it. It, was, it, was, it wasn't like I thought, right, I have to set something in that year and I'll work out what it is. It, it was the other way around, really. So very much story first and uh, period second. Yeah, story and character, mm. yeah. Now, there might be a woman on the throne, but roles for ordinary women in 1601 were strictly limited, and your protagonist, Shay, has to dress as a boy to be able to work as a messenger. Yes. I mean, the the two main characters, well, one is one is a messenger and, and one is an actor. And I think it just comes from that that um, something that happens every time I write, or even 
when I read, you, you place yourself in that time and you think, mm. how would have I, I survived? You know what I mean? If you read something set in World War II, you're kind of like, how quickly would I have died? Um, and with the Eliz- with Elizabethan times, my kind of thought was I'd either be a performer or I'd be something pretty lowly like a messenger. Um, and the, the kind of messenger system in Elizabethan London was, was fascinating because obviously it's a time before a postal service or, or phones or anything like that. So the, they're the absolute lifeblood of the city. And I kind of, I've always been interested in, in those people who can kind of go anywhere in the city. It's like, it's like bike messengers in the 80s mm. or the kind of the Baker Street irregulars. You know, I, I love that sense of, of, of people exploring the city and, and being able to write about different parts of the city and, and what's happening. So, yeah, it was a job that I thought that I probably would have ended up in. I was kind of prepared for the role of messenger, I suppose. And Shay beats the competition by running messages over the rooftops of London. It reminded me a little bit of Catherine Rundle's Rooftoppers as well. The weird thing is I've never read that, but a couple of people have said it to me. And the documentary that I just mentioned about the child actors was by Catherine Rundle. It's it's absolutely fantastic. But yeah, no, I've, I've never read the books. I'm not really sure where it came from i i think i mean partly because i spent a lot of the time kind of poring over maps of london and i had maps of london open you know while i was writing so i had that bird's eye view of the city Mm -hmm. right from the start and obviously there's a lot about about kind of birds and bird's eye views and and how the city looks to 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 like hawks and stuff like that in there so i think I, i started off with that kind of slightly omnipotent viewpoint looking down on the city and it it just seemed to make sense to, to to work it that way now as we heard in the clip shay is being pursued running across these roofs and she is helped to escape by nonsuch who as you've already mentioned is one of the blackfriars boys the young lads who are coerced in many ways to oh, yeah. uh, act on stage in usually female parts so again we've got uh, boys playing girls and girls playing boys it's a bit like a blur song but um (laughs) these blackfriars boys really did exist as you say and they were controlled by an unscrupulous man called henry evans yeah i mean they all exist none such himself is is just a creation um, but the others, Trussell and Avery, are taken from historical records of the time. But we know nothing about them apart from the fact that they were press ganged into doing this. I mean, there's a, there's a famous court case from 1601 where um, a fairly well-to-do gentleman goes to court to try and get his son back from Evans. Evans has, has stolen him to perform as a singer for the masks, the, the, the plays that they put on for the monarch at the time. And, and the annoying thing is that we have all the records of the case, but we don't have the verdict. The verdict is missing. But I'd be prepared to bet that Evans would have won because he had a, a warrant from the Queen to do mm. this. You know, the, the, the role, the role of, of kind of theatre and of, of masks at this time, it, it wasn't a niche pursuit at all. This was the absolute height of entertainment at the time. This was Anton Deck, Netflix, Saturday Night TV, must see. And actors, especially these kind of boy actors, were incredibly famous. Mm. You know, two thirds of Londoners went to the theatre. Like famous actors at the time, the kind of the Will Kemps and people like that, they were as famous as you could be without being royal. And they had this strange netherworld in, in, in the world of class. They mixed with, obviously, with, with the very highest. And, but at the same time, they were basically slaves, you know what I mean? And they could be pimped out and swapped, and they were discarded at kind of 18. We have no record of any of them after, after they were Blackfriars boys, which is quite sad. Yeah, and there's a suggestion that Nonsuch himself could be the son of nobility and that actually Queen Elizabeth might be quite happy to turn a, a blind eye to uh, this press ganging of young lads because it fires a warning shot over the bowels of the nobles. It keeps them in their place. And this gives Evans a, 
a foot in both camps, a foot at court and a foot in the gutter. Yes. And he's not the only character to have a foot in two camps. Shay is not just a messenger, she is also a seer for the cult of bird worshippers that she grew up in. Could you introduce us to the Avis Coltons? Well, the Avis Coltons, they're a confection. I made them up Mm -hmm. entirely. The whole idea just came from one of those what-if conversations. You know, it's kind of like we were talking about societies that worship jackals and cats and stuff like this. And I was saying, why has no one worshipped birds? They seem seem very worshipable. You know what I mean? They they live in the heavens. They're unknowable. You know, they're kind of powerful. They're strange. And and like like a lot of my writing, it came out of just wondering about it. What would happen? How would it feel to worship birds? What would you do? And just writing it down. You know, so much of, of my writing is just me trying to make sense of my thoughts. You know, I will have an idea and... It's only through kind of writing it down and examining it that way that I actually know what I think about it. And that, sound, that sounds very strange, but it's, it's a constant process. And, and quite often what happens is I write that stuff down and I think, oh, I don't think anything interesting about this at all. So it just gets scrapped and I've, I've wasted a couple of days. But, but this was just something that just kept kind of nagging at me you know what I mean and Mm. and because so much of the book was written in in lockdown and I spent a lot of time cycling around London and out to Windsor and places and constantly kind of followed by red kites and stuff and and going into central London and seeing how the pigeons and the magpies have kind of taken it over again Um, I do think there's definitely something about that there you know just the sense that the birds were, were coming back when you know were, were taking over well yeah and for the first time since i moved to london 35 years ago you could hear them and no traffic noise in the background and there there was something Incredible, quite angelic yeah. in, yes, in, in many uh, totally ways. totally you know i mean i mean the, the the dawn chorus is one of the the absolute wonders i think just this this kind of this sense of the world waking up i mean obviously if if you had a late night you're not going to appreciate it <laughs> but i mean if you're up early enough there is something there's something incredible about the the curtain being thrown back on the day that way shay is able to read the murmurations of the starlings the, the shapes in the clouds of birds this is not a role that she feels particularly happy in she doesn't feel particularly well qualified but it does mean that to the general public an avis colton like her is viewed as a fortune teller and evans tries to exploit this and her abilities bring her into contact both with the queen and with the queen's advisor alchemist and sometime magician john d who is a fascinating character and actually who I, I believe did write a treatise on the divine nature of birds. Did he? I oh. read something on the internet, so I'm not sure it's 100% true. <laughs> well, I, well I, I'm going to steal that because that's going to be absolutely great when people ask, ask me about him <laughs> again. I've, I've always been fascinated by him and it, this goes back to your first question. Mm. One of the reasons why I stuck with the Elizabethan age is it was the last age where like magic and science coexisted. You know, John Dee was the preeminent scientist of the time, you know, with quite rigorous scientific methods in some things, and he was an astronomer. But at the same time, he believed in angels. You know, he thought an angel was visiting him in his house. He believed in alchemy all those kind of things. And there's something really powerful about an age where those two things still stick together. You're decades before the, the Enlightenment, and then those two things go on their way, and they're mm-hmm. actually set against each other. Uh, and magic loses, I think, a, a lot of its power when, when, it, when it's not the kind of preeminent explanation of, of what's going on. And the, the, the thing with the fortune-telling is I'm really careful in the book Shane never foresees anything. She says things and they come to pass, but that's because people take her seriously. She never has a vision that that doesn't have to be made in, into reality. And I've 
always been interested in kind of like tarot cards and stuff like that. I'm an absolute non-believer. Mm. I don't believe there's any supernatural possibility to it. I don't think people can tell the future. I don't believe in mediums and spiritualists, any of these things. But as a kind of starting point for thinking about things, I think they're really interesting. So when I was writing the ghost theater, I would do, I would do the tarot cards every morning. And they always kind of prodded me in an interesting direction, not because they have any supernatural power, but because forcing yourself to, to start in a certain point and to make some choices really early on is always really good. You know, I mean, when I'm making music, Brian Eno does what a kind of the middle class equivalent of tarot cards, these obscure alternatives cards, which give you something to do at the beginning of the day or, or when you're stuck. And sometimes they'd be kind of like quite specific, you know, about kind of like honor your mistake as a hidden intention. Mm. Um, and sometimes they're things like tidy up, which <laughs> actually is almost always the most useful one. But, I, you know, it's important to me that, that Shay, she doesn't predict anything. But if you believe in it, if you believe in magical powers and someone says something will happen, you go out of your way to make it happen. And that's what, weirdly, that's kind of what acting is and it's what music is. You are making stuff up that doesn't exist and making it exist. You know, it, it is. It's alchemy. You're taking the, the, the lead of kind of like words and musical notes and turning them into the gold of, of meaning, I suppose, or of emotion. And you give us wonderful detail about how that alchemy is created, both in the Blackfriars Theatre and Cocaine, that we shall discuss in a minute or two, we actually see behind the scenes how the ordinary is transformed into something extraordinary. Yeah. Just with that sprinkle of fairy dust that is special effects by, created by bellows or gunpowder and lighting and costumes. And, and that's transformative. That's the alchemy. Mm. Totally. I mean, it's a, it's a, the thing about about performance, you know, kind of musical performance or acting or any of those things is we kind of make a contract with each other that we're going to treat it like it's real, mm. and it only only works if the audience does it. You know what I mean? With the Swade Show, there's no way it's a good show unless the audience is good. It doesn't matter how well we play and how impassioned we are if the audience doesn't kind of enter into that deal with you then then it's flat it's dead you know it's 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 an old saying but for a really good show you need like 5005 people to be good you know 5000 mm -hmm. people in the audience and five on stage you know it's it, it it's that and as i get older you know i used to believe very much that you should kind of hide away the tricks and stuff that you use to make art so like with suede shows it was all about kind of deepening the mystery and and never never letting people know that that you're playing a role it was all about authenticity you know we just step onto yeah. stage like we are backstage nowadays i'm much more interested in the idea that it is a role and you switch it on and off and in a way there's something even more magical about this it's like we come out of our everyday lives and indulge in a, a ritual and and reading a book is the is the same for me R reading a great book you have to give yourself up to it. You have to say, I know this isn't real, but I'm going to treat it as if it is. And, and that's, that's kind of the importance. But, but it's a high wire act because the, the author has to do nothing to bring you out of that. And you have to do nothing to, to kind of doubt it, I suppose. Yeah, and, and, and this book is very much a, a book about the nature of performance. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Who, who owns the performer who owns the performance you question patronage and management and and also being able to step away from the performance and people like nonsuch being able to to live their life as an ordinary person rather than just a performance and there's questions about whether being a star is actually a, a gilded cage yeah, I mean, it obviously is for them. 
But I think the thing that I keep coming back to is this idea that these things that we think of as great art were all commerce mm. originally. And every art form goes through. You know, rock and roll was a fad. It was for teenagers. Uh, and, and now it's taken incredibly seriously. Now, photography. I mean, it's only, you know, kind of like 100, 150 years ago that photographs were, were just for adverts. You know what I mean? The idea that they were art and you'd spend a million quid on one is, would have been ridiculous. And it's totally true of theatre. I mean, it's, it's hard to remember that Shakespeare wasn't this kind of uh, looming demigod that we see him as now. He was a working writer who was writing things that were exciting and mm. sort of thrilling and scary. And the mind wasn't always on higher things. And it, it's, it's weird. When I started writing the book, it, it was very much like you say, it was about the nature of performance. And it was quite a cerebral, slow book. And it ended up as a bit of a romp, as a bit of an adventure. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed writing something that that would entertain as well as kind of make you think. I'm talking about taking control of the narrative. Shay and Nonsuch clearly do feel exploited by Evans, and they want to harness the power of storytelling to create their own narrative, and that is when they set up the ghost theatre. It's, it's a theatre for ordinary people, for the groundlings, outside the walls of the Blackfriars Theatre, where they are telling the ordinary stories of ordinary people. And as you've already mentioned, the, the parallels with punk and actually what you do in Suede, oh, yeah, everyday stories, are, are very, very powerful. I love it when you find some kind of like connection, some kind of echo with the past that makes you think, right, we're the same people. The situations are different, but you know, kind of emotionally, deep down, we're, we're the same kind of people. Mm. And, you know, when Suede started, it was really important to us that we were singing about ourselves and the kind of lives that we led. And I, I definitely it has parallels with punk, but there's a big what if here, you know. I kept thinking, okay, in Elizabethan London, people must have felt this way. I don't believe that people change that much you know people must have felt like they wanted to see themselves on stage to to read themselves on the page those kind of things and that's kind of where the book comes from how would you do that in 1601 and one of the reasons why it's set so far back is that when you're writing about kind of like victorian england the trouble is that we we have pretty good records so it needs to be a time when there's these big big gaps where you could say look this could have happened it, it truly could have happened. This is how people behave. These are the opportunities they had. This is what I think might have occurred. Obviously not something exactly like this, but this is the kind of feeling and kind of artistic mood that I think would have occurred somewhere. We just don't, we don't know about it. It also finds an echo in the mythical town of Cocaine, mm. which also makes an appearance when plague hits London, the theatre troupe has to move out, and there they come across another bunch of subversive performers. Cocaine, the, the land of milk and honey for the ordinary man. Yeah, again, it's this fantastic mix of what we would think of as, as kind of very low culture. Mm. You know, I mean, like the freak shows, you know, they're mermaids and, and stuff like that. And, and, and high culture, you know, and, and theatre. I mean, a lot of it came from, I did a book with a guy called Stephen Elcock, who's a kind of online creator called England on Fire, which is a book of a couple of hundred artworks that take you on a kind of psychic journey through England, England's history and England's psyche. And he talked a lot about the, these odd cults that sprung up outside of London in the north and in Wales and in places like that, who were, you know, trying to create a, a worker's paradise. You know, this is it's pre the charters, but it's kind of like the diggers and people like that. And we're tearing down enclosures and trying to return the land to the people. And just when I read about cocaine and th this idea of it being kind of like a paradise for the ordinary person, you know, 
in the descriptions of it, kind of roast chickens fly straight into your mouth and kind of like all the rivers are ale and, the, and these kind of things. Um, it just seemed a, a nice way to kind of write about those cults that, that, that might not be too po-faced. Absolutely. And I, and I did wonder if maybe this was the part of the book that you had written when you were on the road again with Suede after lockdown, because there's that real joy of a travelling circus going around the country and, and creating a, a night of fantasy and joy. It wasn't written when we were touring, but, but mm. definitely the appeal of touring is in there. I mean, there's something... It's, especially in the kind of like, you know, the kind of purple patch of the early 90s. There is something incredible about like 30 of you rolling into Copenhagen or Tokyo or some, something like that, doing your performance and then going out and exploring the city. The, the, there's something incredibly appealing about that. I mean, it's, it's how I've, I've seen the world. Mm. Um, and it, it's one of the things I'm, I'm most grateful for, really. You know what I mean? I've been to like 50 countries and almost always explored them with long-term friends you know which most people really don't get to do that as uh, you know that's that was my job it wasn't even a holiday absolutely well you rock up and everybody leaves happy although not always the performers themselves and that's something that you cover in your debut novel the ruins which we will discuss after the break share your views on the books you love with red Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-971-1999. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with Matt Osman, author of The Ghost Theatre and The Ruins, and brother of Richard Osman, author of the Thursday Murder Club series. Matt, earlier we were talking about the roles and personae that we adopt and how true we can remain to ourselves. And that's certainly very much at the heart of your debut novel, The Ruins, where a reclusive, socially awkward protagonist, Adam, is investigating the murder of his narcissistic and uh, <laughs> highly destructive twin brother, Brandon. Um, could you describe it maybe a little bit more eloquently than I just did? No, I mean, you've described it very well. Basically, it's, it's about two twins. Um, and when Adam finds that his brother has been killed, he promises to investigate it for his twin's partner. And in doing so, um, people think that he is his twin, Brandon, who is a kind of narcissistic, destructive, failed rock star with a level of kind of um, interestingness about him. But, but to impersonate him, he has to take on some of his worst qualities. And it's a book very much about if you pretend to be something for any length of time, do you become it? You know, and, and there's a parallel with the ghost theatre, that, that that same question is being asked. I'm always thinking about the roles that, that people play. You know, I mean, actors and, and musicians are, are just a kind of heightened version of it. But we all have a kind of Rolodex of, of persona that, that we work our way through throughout the day. We all have a work personality. We all have a kind of personality for, for our partner, you know. These slightly different versions of ourselves, but especially with the work one, you know, I always come back to the idea that if you spend so much of your time being this kind of like positive, can-do kind of person, does it make you like that or does it make you the opposite? And Brandon has thrown himself fully into his rock star persona, even though he has destroyed his own band. He has this odd scorched earth policy for <laughs> everything in his past. And, and it's incredibly self-destructive, but he has just got this mono-focus on the fact that he wants to be remembered as a, a, a great musician. And then his 
brother Adam who has retreated into his own shell, gone too far the other way. And there's mm -hmm. that definite sense that somewhere in the middle lies sanity and... A complete human being, yes. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, yeah, funnily enough, I've got, I've got twin nieces and it was fascinating to me watching them grow up because they're almost forced into opposition with each other. Hmm. There's this thing that human beings like to tell people apart. So, you know, the one who was slightly more academic became the academic one, but that meant that the other one was the sporty one. And the one who was slightly more outgoing was the, the gregarious one. So that meant the other one was, was the quiet one. Um, but on the spectrum of human beings, they were very, very close to each other, but they were almost forced into these roles of being slightly different from each other just to have an identity of their own. And I, I definitely mind that for, for Adam and Brandon, th this idea that at the very heart of, of what they want, they both want control. You know, Brandon has this control over this band that he will do anything to, to, to kind of keep in charge of. Adam builds a kind of model city in his flat. The, he's constantly directing, you know, both of them, they want to be in control of, of their own little world. But the way they dress it up is, is very different. Did that wish for control and the way that you can become all consumed by the creative force in your life is that something that grew from your own experience as Suede? I mean, I, I'm guessing that you started writing The Ruins after the band split in 2003. Yeah. And that split must have taken a huge part of your life and the way you defined yourself away from you and made you focus on on the bit that you'd left. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that, that's totally, totally true. You know, I mean, up until that point, I'd been Matt from Suede. You know, it, it was kind of, that was my surname. <laughs> um, and, uh, and one of the things about writing the book was that I was in that weird position of being kind of like 40 and having to start again, which doesn't really happen. You know, most people at 40, that's when they double down on what it is they do. So I, in my mind, I was working through, you know, can you be a completely different person? Can you have a, a completely different identity but i think the the other side of it is i mean both adam and brandon it's there but for the grace of god go i if i'd been the kind of person who wanted to be a lead singer and i'd failed i think i'd have been unbearable it's very easy to be gracious when you're successful but if i'd struggled and struggled and struggled and watched people who i thought were less talented than me succeed i don't think i would have been that different from from Brandon and the other side of that is that kind of like shut yourself in a world of your own it's very much something a side of me that I have and if life had turned out very differently I can imagine being one of those people you know it's it, it, it's the same as I was saying with the ghost theater a lot of it is working out if I'd been born into this situation or if, if I was forced into this situation how would I cope you know what I mean? What, what would I do? And I think the thing with Adam and Brandon is the answer is not very well. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lovely line in, in the book. Songs have that capacity to be special in a way that life never really turns out to be. And I certainly got the sense in the ruins that you were trying to trap that lightning in the bottle that you've mm. got on stage with a song that you'd written or co-written with Brett and seeing 5,000 people just go nuts as soon as they hear the first riff. And the power of storytelling, as you say, to, to create that world, to create that theatre in a book where the reader is totally going mm. with, yeah. with the dream. It's, I think I've read you called it a, a consensual hallucination. Yeah, totally. That's what, that's what art is. And there's nothing more depressing than the idea that you're doing a magic trick and no one's watching. You know, I mean, that's, what, that's the bitterness that drives Brandon. He has those moments of transcendence, you know, and I wanted to write a book that was a little bit about what it feels like to make music and what it feels like to be on stage because 90% because of books about musicians are about lifestyle what is life like for 
a musician and it's all very kind of like private jets and leather trousers and i wanted to write about the the, the kind of the small pleasures of it just the moment when when you make something that that wasn't there before you know for all you see in the book you see like huge tours at the o2 and everything like that but but the, the moments that count and the moment moments that that shine are when you know five of you make something that wasn't there the hour before and there there is this moment that live or in the studio or writing every now and then you make something that that didn't exist before and it's it's i don't know it's one of the the deepest pleasures i can think of it's basically what i'm chasing all day every day just stringing together those moments where where you make something beautiful obviously the ruins is i think a very personal novel and i'm guessing that's why you narrated the audiobook version of it yourself um yes and no it's it, it, loads of people asked me to do it because it came out on quite a small publishing house and the a lot of the the market for it was going to be swayed fans lots of them said oh, i'd like to hear you read it so it just seemed like quite a nice idea i, I kind of regret it in a way I think I did an okay job, but having done the audiobook for the Ghost Theatre and hearing what someone else brought to it, that was quite special to me. I, I like collaboration mm. in art. Obviously, I've been a musician for a long time, which is very collaborative, but I like editors and I like people getting involved. You know what I mean? I'm not precious about my work at all. If someone kind of says, this could be improved, that could be improved, great. I, mean, I love to hear it. And... It didn't occur to me that the process of making an audiobook would be collaborative, I suppose. Mm. But when, when I came to listening to Ellie Kendrick reading The Ghost Theatre, and she was putting stresses in slightly different places to me, and it, it, just, it just twisted the meaning, but in a really, really interesting way. And I suddenly thought, okay, this, it's, it's another way into the book you know it's a, it's another way of thinking about it and i worry a bit with the ruins that it's so precisely what i meant that it might have lost some kind of you know spark that could, could have come from someone else well as a blind person who would not have been able to read the ruins if it hadn't been recorded i'm just delighted that it was an audiobook and i thoroughly enjoyed it and um, i know your brother's got nystagmus the the eye condition mm. uh, and my mother i mean both of them are uh, too short-sighted to drive mm. even with glasses yeah so, I mean, it must be doubly important for you to know that your books are accessible to those of us who can't see to read. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I was always, always going to do an audio book, and I've always been interested in the sound of things. A lot of my writing, I will kind of like miss out a more accurate word if there's a better sounding word mm. in its place. The, the, the poetry of it, I suppose, is, is, is really, really important to me. And it was strange. When I read the audiobook of The Ruins, I mean, it taught me so much. I mean, it taught me where it was a bit boring, where it should have been edited, because you can kind of flit over that stuff if you're kind of reading with your eyes. But because just the, the length of it, with an audiobook, I was like, okay, I go on a bit here, you know what I mean? Mm. Or I could have said this more precisely and concisely and the story would still have been moving along. But w with, with the Ghost Theatre, when I was done, I read it out loud from start to finish, which took me about a week. And I made hundreds and hundreds of edits based on that just the, the rhythm of the sentences or words that I overuse that you just, you don't notice when you're looking at it, but when you've said the same thing, you know, seemingly so for some reason I say mm. all the time, it was, it was a revelation to me what, what was added and the way it colored the book, you know? Um, and, and even now I'm, you know, I'm working on something else at the moment. If it's, a, I think a really key scene, I will read it out loud to myself and imagine someone's reading it to me and and just see what it pictures and whether whether I've got the kind of lyricism of it. Yeah, whether the cadence works, whether there's yeah, too totally. much alliteration in there. Yeah, no, it, it, 
that's that, that that's exactly that or, or not enough alliteration you know you suddenly mm. kind of like oh that could trip off the tongue a bit better I'm guessing your mum's house is quite an interesting place to be at family reunions. What with <laughs> you and your brother Richard Osman, the author of the Thursday Murder Club series. I mean, you're, you're kind of cornering the market, aren't you? You've got crime, you've got literary fiction. Were you two brothers who sort of sat down and created stories when you were growing up? Not really. It's, it's funny. Neither of us were huge readers. I mean, Ricky used to create these kind of like league tables and and World Cups and uh, <laughs> everything would be like statistics and stuff like that. And he'd create these incredible worlds. And even now, if you talk to him, you know, he, he says it, it, for him, it's all about the format. So with the Thursday Murder Club, he knew the format of it before he knew anything else because he spent you know his life creating formats for for tv um so he's always interested in things that are, are quite robust and can be translated into other languages and have a kind of internal sense that works together um my mum was a teacher but despite that we didn't have kind of, kind of a lot of great literature in the house i can remember kind of like alistair MacLean and valley of the dolls and stuff mm. like that i mean all, all quite thrilling when you're young but it, it was only later on, you know, when, when I was touring with Swade, books became incredibly important. You have these huge swathes of, of time. And especially on a show day, I'd, I don't particularly like to listen to other people's music on, on the day of a show. Right. So, you know, you, you'll often find the five of us in a dressing room kind of going through books and, and, and like passing on books and stuff like that. And I think Ricky was the same, you know. I think we both had a bit of an epiphany that we'd worked in very collaborative things and enjoyed it but we got to an age where we were like i'd like to do something of my own i'd like to do something that i stand and and fall by it's like with suede i can always take credit for it but you know there's five of us and it's very convenient because you know if people don't like it i said well they don't like brat and if people do like it i say well, it's all of us but you, you do get to a point where you, you're like right i need to do something that might fail uh, because of me but might succeed because of me and weirdly i, I mean me and ricky started writing at almost exactly the same time he sent me a text just out of the blue we were talking about something else and he said look i'm about two-thirds of the way through writing a novel and i was like oh I'm about three quarters of the way through doing exactly the same thing. We hadn't <laughs> talked about it. We hadn't told anyone we were doing it. No one knew. Um, but I think we both just had that desire to do something that was entirely ours. And I think also, and it possibly comes from, you know, having teachers as parents, I'd always regarded the novel as the kind of uh, the Everest of artistic mm pursuits there's some there's something so fantastically pure about it that you don't need any equipment and you don't go on tour oh, mm. uh, and you don't do any of this if you've got a pen and a paper and an imagination you can a conjure worlds but b make a living from it yeah you know yeah. Uh, and and that was i think important to both of us you know we've both made a living making kind of entertainment and and art and it was important to me definitely that i wrote something that that people liked enough to actually spend some money on is there friendly rivalry between you is there any hope there ever might be a collaboration between the two of you or is it very much this is my world this is yours <laughs> you can't really have a rivalry when when, when one of you has sold five million books you know, it's 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 just it's it's not really a rivalry. I think we'd probably be much more competitive. A, if he'd sold a lot less books, or I'd sold a lot more, and B, if if our books were in any way similar. I can remember so clearly reading the first Thursday Murder Club book when when he sent me the draft, thinking, "Oh, thank God." It was so far in kind of style and intention from what 
I was writing that it was like there's no there's no problem here you know what I mean and it's always kind of been that that way between the two of us you know he's always been a kind of mainstream Saturday night light entertainment kind of guy he loves he loves that stuff there's there's nothing cynical about what he does you know he he loves gentle popular entertainment and for better or worse I've always wanted to make something that was I guess kind of edgier and more difficult than that. It's 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 where I find interesting things happening. So we're, we're not we're not really competitive. We've done a few things together, like we did Hay, and we've done a couple of interviews. And I always find it really really satisfying because I think we complement each other quite well. Yeah, no, I don't think we can hear that in your answers. You, you're clearly very fond of each other, and um... oh yeah, he's great. So, uh, and and at least if you carry on writing a book each year, then you have a Christmas present to give to each other. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cheap. (laughs) Right. Well, you've already said that you are uh, an avid reader. So I think it's time to finish off the interview with the books of your life. So first off, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? I think the one is probably The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I read that when I was quite young and I can remember finding it amidst my, my parents' books because it it wasn't a paperback and it didn't have a, a picture of kind of like a, a gun and a martini on the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember thinking that it was probably from Sherlock Holmes' time. Um, it almost certainly wasn't. It was probably 1950s, but it was hardback and it was kind of dark brown and all those things. And I loved the book and worked my way through all of the short stories and then onto the the kind of longer stories, the kind of the sign of four and how the Baskervilles and stuff like that. And I still love them now. I think they're there's a satisfaction, especially I think for a quite bookish kid and someone who uses their intellect to get on. But thinking about it now, I wonder if it was just the exploration of London that, that was mm. quite a big thing of why I loved it. I always wanted to move to, to London. The minute I knew that London existed, then that's where I was going to go. And looking back on those stories, they're fabulous how they explore London. You know mm. what I mean? Sherlock Holmes can go anywhere. You know, he can go to kind of like London clubs to, to meet his brother. And then he can go to opium dens in disguise. You know what I mean? And he, he kind of consults with heads of state. And then he has the, the Baker Street ir- irregulars. And, you know, I, I love writing about London. I love writing about cities. And I think part of my kind of vision of what London is and the multitudes it contains come from those, the, the, those books, from those short stories. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? I'm rereading at the moment The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay oh. by Michael Chabon. I love it so much. I, I love his writing. You know what I mean? I, th- I think he's, he's one of those people who just gets to the, the nub of story so, so well. And he's so inventive. And... You know, the first thing of his that I read and, and loved was the, the Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is incredibly bold and quite experimental and, and funny and everything. But I, Cavalier and Clay, I think, is, I think it's his masterpiece. It's so full of love. It's so full of love for the characters and, and tenderness for them for, for, you know, when they make mistakes. And it conjures up a world that, that I love, you know, this kind of pre-war New York and the language is great and it's funny. And I mean, I don't really have much in the way of comfort reads apart from kind of like P.G. Woodhouse and people like that. But in terms of a book, you can just immerse yourself in. Mm. Um, I loved it when I first read it. I'm rereading it now and I love it all the more. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Well, I don't know whether this is cheating because it's not out until November. But That's fine. There's an author called Anna Smale who wrote a fantastic book about London, actually, uh, called The Chimes, which was um, listed for the book. Uh, and it's about a London where, where memory has been destroyed. And the only way to remember things is through music. It's incredibly clever, but it's a great adventure story as well. But I'm actually not going to talk about that today, but I recommend it. But she's just written a book called Bird Life, which is the story of basically two two women in Tokyo 
who meet and, and both being driven mad by grief, different different kinds of grief. It's such an incredible book because it, it kind of takes you inside mania and madness, but in such a way that it never feels like metaphor. You always feel like you're you're with these people as the world is changing and as birds start talking to you, you know, and it's it's so hard to explain, but it's one of those things that I read kind of with bated breath, mm. you know, because you're you're so concerned for the characters and they never feel like symbols at all, you know, like straight away they feel like people you could inhabit. And it's obviously one of the huge, huge pleasures of reading is putting yourself through danger mm. without having to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's saying, if I was in that situation, again, I keep coming back to it, but, you know, if I was driven mad by grief, how, how would I feel? The thing is to do that, to do it well, you have to be such an extraordinary writer because it can never feel, feel like you're being exploited. It must always feel like you're in there with them. And Anna, she's just, she's just great. She's just, just a brilliant, brilliant writer. I promise you it's going to be up for all the prizes, and rightly so, because it's, it's really good. What a fantastic recommendation. Well, Matt Osmond, thank you so much for sharing your joy of reading with us today and for sharing so many insights into your own writing and your musical life as well. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me, Red. It was fun. That's it for this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Matt Osman, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to leaf through our back catalogue or drop us a line, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Juita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.